what does it take to be resilient? Sometimes it takes gaining altitude, right? So that you can see out. Um, I was looking at Mississippi kites yesterday over an old field and I'm and I'm watching these Mississippi kites and one of these birds is swooping so low that, that I can hear its beak clatter as it's catching dragonflies. And I'm thinking about what these birds must see from their position hundreds, maybe a thousand feet in the sky. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Dr. J. Drew Lanham. Drew is the alumni and distinguished professor of wildlife ecology, a master teacher, and certified wildlife biologist at Clemson University. Drew is a leader in the field of ornithology, and has readily and incisively expanded his view to reveal and explore the ways wildlife sciences speak to the social, economic, political, and ecological turmoil of our times. You don't want to miss Drew Lanham's book, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair. It's published by Milkweed Editions. Today I get a chance to speak with J. Drew Lanham. I'm so excited to talk with you, Drew. It's been great to meet you. It's, it's good to be here, there, uh, somewhere in between, Mary, and it's uh, nice to see you again. And so as you know, uh, this How It Looks From Here podcast that we're doing is shifting focus just slightly. Actually, it's broadening focus. We started with how does it look from here for people going through COVID from different positions in their lives. And now we are spreading it out to include the whole of climate change. It doesn't leave COVID behind. But the question essentially of this podcast is, how does life look to you? Well, I ran across the elegy of three plagues. Mm -hmm. And one of the three was not climate change. And so I'm curious, what do you think about this notion of plagues and how they can actually instruct us for building skills for the unknown, which is climate change? Great question, Mary. And, you know, poems or essays are never finished. So I need to go back and put that in because it's, it's such an overarching um, plague. And I, I always go back to my grandmother I'm a MAFA, and, and what she taught me, or I used to hear her saying sort of constantly, is this whole idea of um, 
God sent Noah the rainbow sign saying won't be water but fire next time. And here we are in the midst of the fire, right? Literally and figuratively, but it's all hot. So it, it surrounds us and it surrounds and compounds every other plague, whether it be political, whether it be the virus or, or whether it be racial injustice. And so um, you can consider climate change sort of the cauldron that it all boils in. And it's impossible to separate any of those three things really in part or in toto from one another or really from, from climate change. And as I think about it, you know, I, it, it expands outward. You know, my grandmother used to talk about wars and rumors of wars. And, and so all of those things, human unrest really um, writ large and, and sort of the struggle for equity, a large part of it, which is tied up in sort of this search um, and security of, of resources, of natural resources. Um, sometimes it's as simple, um, but as vital as clean water to drink or a place to 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 be safe. So uh, you know, as I as I see it, really, and and thinking about sort of the the allegory of plagues, which are you know this this sort of discombobulated life that we seem to be living in, going from one bit of bad news to the next. Um, I try to find ways as a writer to, to connect them because I think it's important for us to see the connectedness in all these things. It's daunting for sure, but to understand how every single thing is tied to the next thing. So again, the, the, the issue of climate change that we've been dealing with that we're living in um, the issues of, of COVID, which we're living in, a new variant of it, and are probably likely to be living in variants for a while. Racial injustices that as an African-American, as a Black man, my ancestors and I have been living in for 400 plus years, and then political unrest that, that seems constant. All of those things then I, I sometimes like to bring things back, having just come from Montana and that that amazing wildness out there that is is hazed over in part by um, the fire next time. Here we are sort of in this this place where we have to think about our ecology, not in just wildness, by, but what surrounds us. What's around us? What's around each one of us so that none of us are left out, so that people who are in urban areas um, who, who don't have the immediate privilege of being able to go out and experience wildness in some far-flung place, don't feel left out, that they know that the environment, that the air, the water, the soil, um, that the very breaths that we breathe are all tied up in all these other things. So that's sort of how I, you know, I, the old phrase from my college days was, was what, act locally, think globally? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think that's still the clarion call. Yeah, I think that that's something that Gary and I talk about a lot with full ecology. And, you know, what we're really one of the things that I've noticed that we must be after is what can be distilled for human consciousness so that we know that we're on solid ground. How can we direct our attention 
so that we know we're on solid ground. And the theme that I was hearing in what you were saying just now is that connection, the fact that we are kin with everything around us, that we belong at the same time we're not the main character. You know, it's not a movie starring us. Well, Mary, I think, um, you know, I talk a lot about introspection and I, I think it all starts with the mirror and every morning when we're able to, to see ourselves, to have some sort of contract to leave the day hopefully better than you found it. And, and that means doing maybe some small thing that helps somebody else along. And so you enlarge yourself. You're not just looking at yourself in the mirror. You're looking at, you're looking at someone else that you're able to help along in some sort of way. So that's very grounding, right? To understand that as much as we may see ourselves in that mirror alone, um, there are others reflected around us and others that we can maybe help along in, in some small way and, and sometimes it's not so small when, when you begin to think about sort of this whole idea of being upstream from a lot of people, right? And those people who are downstream of you are going to depend on your goodwill for clean water or for clean soil. Um, they're going to depend on you for a lot of things mm -hmm. that, that maybe you don't think about on, on your daily journey and, and what you do but it then helps you to think about somebody upstream of you. And, and you certainly want them to be responsible in, in what they do and how they behave. So that, that metaphor of, of the stream and, and where we are in it is, is helpful to me. It's how I try to teach my students to, to, to literally think about their watershed and who's downstream from them but then who they're downstream from, and then think about how you're going to live in that world of confluence. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and again, we're, we're individuals, and it's said that we only have so much power, but then again, we have some power. Well, right. And one of the things that's compelling to me that sort of came out in what you were saying early on is that even in this seeming limitation of a body and the choices that I make here locally, right, there is a rippling out. So one of the questions that we ask in full ecology or invitations, I guess, we offer is take the next week and check. Just check every now and then. Do you really end where your skin ends? Mm. And so in that rippling out, which is something that has been picked up uh, by local food, local investment, all this local thinking because I become this kind of circle of impact. And it's more or less, depending on how many people I'm around, but we have these overlapping circles of impact. So then it becomes, from my investigation, clear that we're all connected with each other. We can't get away from it, you know, because of the air, because of the water, and not just the people downstream, but the animals and the plants and the trees and the air downstream and upstream, both. So I know you've written and you've drawn very vital analogies in your inquiry on what does it mean to dominate anybody or anything. And so when you have the domination of enslavement, which was happening and happens 
perhaps not as formally, but nonetheless, next to the domination of land, which continues to happen. What, what does that do right now, today? How does that look to you? Well, I, you know, the, your idea of, of the circles and the overlapping circles, um, you know, it's hard to unhook one, one ring from the next. And so, you know, I, I look at enslavement, I look at the history of it, I look at, you know, I can look at my family, my ancestors, and as much as I can tell from history, it's, it's pretty, um, <laughs> it's pretty easy, at least from the history I know, to begin to connect my being with that of the founding fathers in some way. I mean, my, my paternal ancestors likely came south from the mid-Atlantic, Maryland, Virginia at about the time of one of the great um, Southern sell-offs of enslaved because the soil had been burned up by tobacco, right? And so, and so then an ancestor that was sold South to grow cotton. And then we look at, at cotton and its impact on, on economy and, and what was happening at the, at the wedge between the 1700s and the 1800s between the 18th and 19th century and and then we began to able to link circles right and so if i can do that lots of people can do that through history mm -hmm. and and we can talk about degrees of separation and the like but then that that sweat that blood that toil was going into the soil um you know, it, it, it begins to degrade the soil in a different way. I mean, from an agronomic sort of standpoint, what tobacco, what cotton does to soil um, is, is sort of easy to figure out from the agronomist, but from the, the sociologist, from the psychologist to understand the wearing that, that being tied to land involuntarily has on not just a person, but then on that person's descendants, on communities, is we're, we're still living that. And, and so, you know, again, those Venn diagrams, I like to envision those circles as not static, but these linkages that sort of go in and out. So our overlap is constant, but, um, they're, they're changing in ways that we need to be aware of. And I think part of our problem, Mary, quite frankly, is that, um, that lots of people see history as something that's gone by. They don't see it as, having, as, as linking into the present. So in, in that way, um, it, it's become problematic for some folks who would like to leave it behind. But uh, you know, I, I think if we leave history behind, I mean, there's that old saying that's been repeated mm -hmm. who knows how many times, mm -hmm. you know, you're doomed to repeat history that you forget. Mm -hmm. So here we are in all these situations, and many of them were avoidable, have been avoidable from what we're doing to each other. Um, you know, the inhumanity of humans to humans, to what we're doing to nature which is really just a short ride from, from, from human inhumanity. I mean, if we can't treat one another well, how can we treat nature well? In, in some ways, that, that um, 
I don't know, Gary likes to put it in 500 years ago, locate it around the end uh, or when the, the turn to the Enlightenment, when we started using more formally the subject-object perspective that in theory and in science practice separated the observer from the observed, which was cool in that it gave us things like x-rays and blue jeans and, you know, jet planes, but was never accurate. And even those people who came up with the discoveries that invented those magnificent things were never separate from, well, gravity, for example, but the air and the people in their lives that made it so that they had the luxury to do these kinds of investigations. So on and on and on it goes. But the fundamental flaw, it seems like, in what at least dominant culture has done is to continue to be adamant and, real, I would say, addicted to the belief that we're separate from the natural world. And that's scary dang business because that means then if I'm separate from the natural world and I can dominate it and it holds my resources, then I'm separate from you because you don't look like me. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's certainly an economy to subjugation. Right. right. I mean, we, we can we can think about, you know, you're going to maximize profit when you don't have to pay for a workforce. Um, but then if 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 you can subjugate human beings and you can subjugate land and and by colonializing it, you can just go once you burn up land somewhere, you can just go somewhere else and get it and get your resources um, and you can get them free or on the cheap or you can wage war, you know, to find more resources and just take someone else's, then, um, you know, that, that subjugation um, becomes societal. And, and I think where we are now is sort of in this hyper frenzy where everything is accelerated. Um, everything is accelerated. I mean, climate change obviously is accelerated because of, of, of what we are doing to the planet and sort of our constant search for more and, and to, to have more. And again, I'm gonna drop back to that mirror to not at some point say, okay, how much more do I need? What, what, what might I do without, or what might I do with less of, or what, how can I rejigger um, things to, to perhaps reuse and be kind to somebody downstream of me? Uh, I, you know, I define conservation, Mary, um, if I can make this jump to, to this intense love and care for something such that you are saving it, hopefully, in abundance for those to come after you whom you may never know. Right. So I, I use that for those four letter words, love and care. Yes. And, and, and those words are, are central to lots of different um, societies, but, you know, we'd like to put a price on it, right? We'd like to commoditize it and, and to, to have it worth something more than the heart can pay. So I, I think, you know, in that whole idea of Descartes and, and, and this separation to objectify and, 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 and then subject others to that objectification, right? that it's easy to look at somebody who is different, who has less, who identifies differently and say, I'm better than you. And then that's an economy of psychology 
right. then that never ever, I mean, it's just a repeating cycle. So then that next person who maybe is objectified then looks downstream to see who he, she, or they can objectify. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. But coming from the frenzy that you were describing earlier, it kind of, I mean, it, it makes sense, but we got to wake up. So how do the birds, for example, <laughs> help us wake up? Because this thing about um, love and care that you're mentioning is, I don't want to anthropomorphize on the one hand. On the other hand, many of the indigenous leaders that both Gary and I have had the opportunity to be in contact with over our, you know, the past many decades, um, have said, you know, this anthropomorphic thing, that's kind of weird. Because we learned how to be who we are from the animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't get how it's such a a problem. So what do the birds have to teach us for reclaiming the the quiet, the quieter space of love and care for relaxing into that connection? What do you see today? Well, I you know, as a scientist, I, you know, I was trained in that objectification, right? That you you observe objectively that you record the data objectively, which is all important, right? But then I think part of what happened is that we've objectified ourselves out of the picture. And so one of the things that I've, I've learned in watching birds, um, I've learned resilience, um, you know, and you, you watch these, these creatures who if given half a chance in, in places that, that, they can, that they can make it. But we insist on constantly paring down those chances. So we remove habitat and then we remove more and then we desecrate the water and we pollute the air. And we want. And so you're giving birds and other wild beings and ourselves less and less of a chance at being resilient. So, so when I watch birds and, and I see them, I was looking at Mississippi kites yesterday over an old field and I'm and I'm watching these Mississippi kites and one of these birds is swooping so low and they're rather inquisitive. It's swooping so low that, that I can hear its beak clatter as it's catching dragonflies. And I'm thinking about what these birds must see from their position, hundreds, maybe a thousand feet in the sky, that what they see Um, is that they're still finding a way and Mississippi kites are in fact expanding their range. And so what does it take to be resilient? Sometimes it takes gaining altitude, right? So that you can see out. Sometimes it takes um, somehow finding a way to elevate yourself above where you are. And, and, and that means taking care of yourself in a way that allows you to, to sort of mentally soar. And I know that that sounds maybe sort of uh, amorphous and in clouds, but, but watching these birds go from these tremendous heights to these lows and in between the highs and the lows, there's this joy of swooping, 
right? And and this joy and the bird nears the ground and then it, it takes this, this, this arc upwards. And I'm trying to imagine what that feels like. Now, I'm not the first person to imagine what it felt like to fly for as long as, as human beings um, have been around and those before us, um, you know, our Neanderthal kin and, and, and other great apes, other hominids, other beings are, are, are looking skyward at birds and probably having some sort of envy that these creatures are able to sort of slip the bounds of earth and be above it. When I watch those birds, I transform for just a few minutes and imagine the world from their purview, right? And, and yeah, certainly there's ugly they see, but there's also still beauty remaining that they are a part of that they also witness. So I think it's up to us to not only witness the sin and the plagues and all those things that are going on out there, but that we have to make this life worthwhile enough so that folks want to save some for later. So witness and the beauty. Yeah, the beauty. I mean, we've got to witness to that. Um, and it's not always easy. I'm, I'm, I'm the first to tell people there are some days that it's, mm-hmm. you know, that it's hard to watch birds. And as all these birds decline, as we've lost, um, as Ken Rosenberg and, and, and Pete Mara talk about the, the three billion birds that we've lost, that's palpable and we can feel that part of the earth that's not with us any, any longer. And so I wanna work not to have more birds disappear so that then there's more witness to beauty because that's what birds are to me. You know, they're not just, they're, they're ecological indicators. So they're the canaries in the coal mine. They help us do, they do all of these amazing things for us um, at no cost. Right. But, but then the, this priceless, this incalculable witness to beauty that has always inspired us, we need to grab hold of again. And that's part of our heart and, and part of our hearts and this love and care that I've talked about. If we can't find beauty, we're going to have a hard time finding love and care because it's going to be harder for us. To, to, to grab something and want to want to hold it close to us. And we can't hold and shouldn't hold wild birds physically close to us. But by goodness, spiritually, we can hold birds and wildness close to us in this way. Gary talked about bewilderment. Yes. You know, that that's something to hold on to. That the things that we don't know, yeah, we seek to know through science and investigation. But you know what? There are some things that I'll never be able to know, and that's okay. I can never know what that kite is thinking as it swoops close to earth. I can guess, but I can also imagine um, that as the bird comes to investigate me from a thousand feet up, that it's wondering, why can't you do what I do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why are you bound down there in, a, in, in this place that I've sort of escaped? So, so that's what I write to Mary and that's what I think about. Um, and I try to connect that connectedness and what the birds not only tell us as scientists and, and the data that they give us, but this sort of data set of, of imagining and joy 
that and this witness to beauty that I think sometimes we lose sight of. I also hear a sweet tolerance of mystery and its uncertainty. And not just a tolerance of that, but a move towards really embracing it. Because as you watch the kite, you can feel the swoop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. I, you know, I'm sure that there's somebody somewhere that could model the swoop. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> that, that, that there is, um, there's a derivative that would, would, a differential equation that would help us understand the swoop, its speed, its, you know, we could predict within probably a centimeter or two um, how low that bird can go before it has to swoop upward again, the dynamics of each feather, all of that, right? But then again, to gain some altitude where I was on the ground and just adore the swoop, that bird at that point in time doing something that I couldn't do. And yeah, I felt it. When that bird came close to me, I felt something. And standing there in that that hay field by myself and and that bird swooping next to me, it felt like it was coming to give me witness, to inspire me, if only for a few moments or for an afternoon. I mean, I've been thinking about it ever since then, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know what it reminds me of is the things you've written about joy. Hmm. You know, there's one one line that, that really caught my attention. It's It goes like this. More than enough to go around when it seems nowhere to be found. You know, earlier I was saying that one of our goals is to distill for ourselves and for as many as we can speak with, you know, where can we stand? Where's solid ground? Because when we stop long enough to ask that question, where am I? Who am I really? Really, there is nothing that can ever, as you wrote in this beautiful poem, we'll put it in the end notes, um, nobody can take that. That's with you no matter what. Yeah, I, you know, that's the, um, that's the wonderful thing about joy is that, you know, you can, you can, you can, you can grab it, grasp it, hold it for yourself, hold it close. But you know what the thing is that that joy is such a light thing that it's some of it's always going to seep out. And, and the joy that's in you that you surround yourself with, it's inevitably going to impact someone else. And that person downstream of your joy, yeah. you, you've then made the world a better place in that. So however we do that, um, sometimes it's singing a song, sometimes it's a smile, sometimes it's a poem. Sometimes it's a podcast. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes it is a podcast, Mary. (laughs) And, and that's the critical thing. You know, I, I think that we each have to find our way to become a part of this linked in this, this, uh, this Venn diagram that we were talking about earlier. And to become a part of that and become a part of this linking of life that then enlarges our connectedness. And when that happens, it's a, it's a good thing because if we don't find our connections um, to survive by, we're going to perish by our disconnections. So 
that's that's I think I think what's so important and and meeting you and Gary and and understanding pretty quickly as we sat at that that table that afternoon that you're standing for something greater right and to try to make connections and to build up rather than to tear down you know part of that model of objectifying um is reductionism that's right right to pull apart so then we can definitively say what it is well if i dissect something to pull it apart um that emergent property that is life that's greater than the sum of the parts isn't as evident so i think what you are doing here in this full ecology, when we think about what ecology is, the interaction between the biotic and abiotic components, that's everything. Yeah, there you go. You know? Well, and you speak about, too, um, one of the things that we uh, suggest that it seems like you live is that um, separate thinking, the capacity to think in that way, is really a powerful tool, but it's just a tool. And so you are an ornithologist. You are a scientist. You apply the rigor of science, but you also speak regularly about your grandmother and the, the way she taught and modeled to you how to be with the mysterious and not name to name everything. So there's a way of going back and forth. Can you say a little bit of that to close us off? Yeah, I, you know, for me, there was, there was never really a separation um, between my spiritual being and and my science, and so uh, you know, I marvel at the the miracles of evolution and migration. I, I you know, to me, um, you know, every bird is is a god worth worshiping. So, in in those ways, um, it's it's not the traditional religion that my grandmother taught me, but it is the reverence she taught me. And so I, I try to move out of the box um, when I can, and moving out of that box is freedom. And when we give our minds um, as scientists and people who understand the importance of, of what the science tells us, but that we allow our minds to also live outside of the box and wonder because wonder is not in a box bewilderment's not in a box um and and so when we allow ourselves to touch those you know you can almost think of those things as clouds that the kites touch exactly and i watched one kite swoop through the grass and i watched it climb literally behind a cloud and it, it was the most amazing thing so um, wonder is a part of my science and bewilderment, a part of my being. So I'm grateful for the opportunity, Mary, to, to, to meet kindred spirits who, who are building that up and building us up in the process. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's a joy to get to chat with you. Thanks for doing this time with me. And I look forward to our paths crossing again and again. Thank you so much for your work. Oh, you're so very welcome. And thanks to you and to Gary for, for all that you're doing, all that you have done, um, and for making us better in the process. Thank you. Look for J. Drew Lanham's essay, Elegy and Three Plagues, in the journal Places. And check out his other writings, like the essay, Birding While Black, 
During our conversation today, we referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, published by Heyday Books and available in bookstores everywhere. We also spoke of Gary, referring to Gary Ferguson, award-winning nature writer and co-author with me, Mary, on the Full Ecology book. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and The Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar Mathers Wynn, Alexi Demray, and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.